Good morning. My name is Trevor Mollenhoff. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Church. Today's scripture reading can be found in Psalms chapter 2, page 448 in the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you. Just take a moment to turn to scriptures there. And if you'll stand with me in the reading of God's uh, scripture. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, and the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and kiss, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For the wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you'll please be seated and take a few moments to dwell on uh, God's Holy Scripture. Well, today's sermon is entitled, Kiss the Sun, and as Trevor said, um, it's Psalm 2, so you'll need to stay there, I think, in Psalm 2 to really see what God is going to be teaching us this morning. Uh, And this sermon is really born out of a series called Looking for a Leader in uh, the series we're doing in in the book of Samuel. Uh, And every once in a while, we're going to focus on a psalm uh, of David, as uh, there are times when other people will be preaching And so we'll be looking at various psalms as we go through this uh, great book. Um, And this is really to help us understand a little bit more about how David thinks uh, and who David is and then what God's great rescue plan for his people really is. If you look at Psalm 2, of course, it follows Psalm 1. Psalm 1 uh, is um, really an introduction along with Psalm 2. The two books or two chapters are an introduction to this uh, portion of the Psalms written by David. Psalm 1, if you notice, really just focuses on the individual. So if you've read through that Psalm, you realize it's all about one person. But Psalm 2 kind of opens it up a little bit and it, its perspective is more worldwide and more global than Psalm 1. So this Psalm is what we're focusing on uh, it's funny, when you read the Bible, when you read the Old Testament, sometimes you get a little bit lost in who is this for and who is he talking about and is this really for me directly? This line I've seen you know, in the psalm or in Samuel, is this really for me? And so one of the things I want to do this morning is, um, is help us gain perspective by realizing that Psalm 2 and much of the Old Testament has really three audiences. You know the time when, um, the church I grew up in did this, but you know the time when churches often have children's moments up front where the pastor brings all the kids up front and explains some part of the gospel or some part of the Christian life to a a bunch of kids sitting on stage. And it's really meant for the kids, but you know also it's really meant for their parents. 
as there's two audiences there. And so it's the same way with the psalm, except now there's three. Let me explain the three audiences. We read Psalm 2, we're really looking at Israel. So David and the nation of Israel and the kings that are physically surrounding Israel during his generation. The second audience is the New Testament audience. And that's the early church. That's when Jesus shows up and says, you know, all the Old Testament is really all about me. Whenever it says the king of kings or the king that's going to last forever or his anointed one, that's really me. And so the New Testament, the early church had a whole new way of reading the Old Testament with all this new meaning um, put on it and, and washing over them. And then you and I are 2,000 years later. So we have, a, we're, we're considered maybe part of the New Testament church, but we're so far removed and our culture is so different that our audience is a little bit different. So, so Old Testament audience, New Testament audience, and us today. It's a really good way to take the Old Testament passages and run it through those three audiences. And what you end up with is a great and grand and true uh, perspective. So that's what we're going to do today. This psalm you can kind of break up into three parts. Um, I'm going to call these three parts by titles. The first is the rage of the nations. And then the second part comes in with the laughter of God. The laughter and the reign of God. And the third part of this psalm is the refuge of God's king. So let's take these three parts through those audiences and see what we can learn this morning. First, let's look at the rage of nations. You'll see it in verses one through three. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings on earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. So we see here, there are a collection of kings and rulers who are dead set against God's king, Israel's king, David, in this sense. Uh, and history bears this out. We hate kings. The people during the time of Psalm 2, their Old Testament generation, they hated authority over them. And so what they did is they became rebels and they threw off these rulers. Look at verse 3. tells you why. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the king is someone who gives you bonds and cords and enslaves you. And of course, in the Old Testament, we see this as true. We see this in the Old Testament. You read 1 Kings and 2 Kings and Chronicles. There have been 41 kings of Israel and Judah and countless other kings around them, and not one of them is trustworthy. The best one we can find is David himself, King David, who wrote Psalm 2, who really Samuel's all about the enthronement of this great king, David. But you know, as well as I do, that David has blood on his hands. He, in the end, was a failure of epic proportions. If you or I did the same things that David did in his life, we would be put in prison for life or on death row. So we can look at the scope and, and all of the different Old Testament kings and say with them, yes, people hate kings because they're untrustworthy and these kings are evil. They're corrupt. They're self-seeking. The New Testament audience felt exactly the same way. The New Testament audience, how long uh, did these people uh, wait until Jesus had to die? Just look at the cross. When Jesus stood up and said, I'm the king, that's why they crucified him. John 1 says he came to his own and his people did not receive him. 
John 3 says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We don't like someone coming into our world and telling us how to live our lives. You and me, today's audience, we feel the same way. You know, you might be neutral about the word God. Our culture might have some neutrality about the word God. Until you call him your king. Kiss the sun means submit to the sun. And then your American blood begins to boil. See, America, America, the whole country is founded on a, really a hatred of monarchies who tax and then ignore, who abuse us and force us into submission against our will and not necessarily for our own good. Our first leader, George Washington, he was the first president of the United States. He reluctantly became our president, and he was so hesitant and nervous about taking any power at all that he went through all of the plans for pomp and circumstance and propriety and how people were going to treat the, the president, the first president of this new nation, and he took everything out that even resembled even slightly something of a king because our, our, our nation threw off the cords of an evil king. Samuel Adams said, and he was a governor in Boston, he said, if you love wealth better than liberty, the tranquility of servitude better than the animating contest of freedom, go home from us in peace. And may America forget that you were once our countrymen. So our forefathers in America afterwards, today's audience reading this psalm, when we hear kiss the sun and submit to the king, we rebel. We don't like it. And I can even go a little bit further into the disguise of this rage because a lot of us here today might say, yeah, I mean, I kind of get that I don't want people to tell me how to live my life, but do I really rage? Am I raging against the king, setting myself out to destroy the king? Maybe not. Maybe that's a little overstatement. But this rage, as you learn, as you discover your own sinful nature, is well disguised. There are those Roman emperors who came against the early church. There are atheists today that come against the church. There, there might even be terrorists who come against Christianity and say, throw off the, the king, throw off the cords of the king. But our rage, our rebellion can be as, as disguised as a college student who comes to Wilmington and just wants to let loose because they're now out of the home. Or a teenager, group of them getting together and just viciously gossiping against one individual. Or it could be a businessman cheating the system for financial gain. Psalm 2 really pulls back those disguises and shows us what's behind them in our hearts rage. It's a sophisticated disguise that us Christians have. You know, the Christians who have a sinful nature still, who are trying to serve the king, trying to kiss the son, but at the same time, there's a sinful nature warring against that, saying, serve yourself. You, you can feel that, can't you? I want to be my own person. I want to make my own rules. I want to live my own life. God, you do your thing. I'll do my thing. Colossians 1 is how Paul describes us. And you were once alienated and hostile in mind. Enemies of God. You are, you're raging and it's hard to get rid of. We hate those bonds. The funny thing is, is that these bonds that we rage against, 
right? These bonds of the king are actually in disguise as well. Those bonds of the king actually are true freedom. Well, that brings us to the next point. And we do need to meditate on our sin. Before we move on, we need to meditate on our rebellion. Because if you have little sin in your life, then Jesus Christ is a little savior. But once we get that, we can move on to the, to the laughter that we begin to hear from God. And this is found in the next few verses here. He who sits, in verse 4, he who sits in the, heavenly, in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. You can hear the laughter of God. The Old Testament audience read it this way, that God is laughing at these kings because of their efforts. Are, are, they're just drastically futile. They're plotting, taking counsel, and, and God laughs. And then God sets his king on his holy hill, says the next few verses. But the king that is set up is David himself. And yes, short term, great success. David does conquer these enemies. Every one of these kings that's raging and plotting and counseling against the anointed one, they fall. They get destroyed. And yet, not forever. Because the nation of Israel falls itself. And all is eventually lost. So that this idea of God laughing, listen, it cannot be contained in the words of Psalm 2 right? This, this idea of God laughing is not contained in Psalm 2. It spills over as a, as a river, just swells over the riverbank. The words of Psalm 2 must spill over its own Old Testament original audience into the New Testament where we see a nation who has been subjected by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then the Romans, and they're living in their land, but they're not really their own, and their land isn't really their own. And in that sense, these people wanted to throw off the rulers, and they wanted to hear the laughter of God against the Roman Empire. And when Jesus stood up and said, I'm the king of the Jews, that's what they were hoping for, that Jesus would finally come and throw off the, Rome, the Romans and push them out of the land and give them back their freedom. But when Jesus said that, they eventually, when they found out he wasn't interested in that, they eventually killed him on a cross that he was not the king that they were looking for. I re you remember the moment when Jesus was on trial and Pilate was asking Jesus a number of questions. Okay, who's the king really there? Who's the real, true ruler in that situation? It's funny, if you think about it, Jesus created the world, right? Jesus was there in the six days of creation, Jesus was there through every single moment of history, all the way up to the point where Pilate takes power in Israel. Jesus remembers Pilate growing up as a, as a little baby, as a little child, as a young teenager. He remembers growing up in every phase of his life. Jesus remembers every moment, every thought that Pilate has ever experienced. And yet, in John 19, Pilate said to Jesus, where do you come from? And Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate says, listen to this. Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or crucify you? Now, in that moment, it doesn't say that Jesus laughed, but I think he did. <laughs> this is the laughter of Jesus looking at Pilate and saying, really, Pilate? Jesus answered, 
You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Those are powerful words. Well, Jesus' followers took this seriously. So when they faced similar trials, they had similar things to say. Let me, let me show you this really great story from early Christian history. Uh, this is one of the early Christians facing his own death by persecution. It happened in 360. A Roman emperor named Flavius Claudius Julianus, that's a great name, uh, reinstated pagan worship previously abolished under Constantine. So the followers of Jesus were seen as powerful enemies to the Rome, Roman gods. And uh, anyways, he was on trial for his life. Uh, this man, Julius Julianus, was, was brutal in his persecution. He tried to wipe out all of Christianity. Um, and Julian taunted one believer named Agaton, trying to entertain his friends. So he's making a public, public spectacle of this. And he says, uh, with so many Christians being put to death, how is your, how is your carpenter of Nazareth doing is he finding work there these days? And without hesitating, this guy, this Christian, Agaton, replies, he is perhaps taking time away from building mansions for the faithful to build a coffin for your empire. He was right. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is the true and good king. And he is building a coffin for our empires. You hear the laughter of God. Now today, how do we look at this today? Is God laughing at our rebellion today? Picture this. This is what God feels like when you and I come against him. And, and, and what I mean by come against him can be, remember, in disguise. So maybe we don't stand up and shake our fist at God and say, I dare you to whatever. You don't have that. But deep in your heart, in the privacy of your heart, you try to hide something from God. Right? You, try, you try to do something and you hope God doesn't see it. And the way that you live your life kind of speaks in that direction of, I'm, I'm not really seeing God as the powerful king that he is. So this is in disguise. But just picture, I've seen these uh, videos on the internet, and it's this little baby chihuahua who is ferocious. You know, it's just like, I'm going to kill you, and he's running at you. And this, this same chihuahua in the other pictures and videos were trying to bite a strawberry. I don't know if you've seen this one. He tries to bite the strawberry, and he can't. He, he, he bites it. He can't even get through the strawberry. He's so weak and small. So little chihuahuas, I have one in my house. And when that dog comes at me, I'm like, laughter. <laughs> this is futile. Your effort. Now, in the dog's mind, though, he's ready to take you out. I think the dog is convinced I'm about to kill this person. But you can hear the laughter of God in, in, in looking at us and our rebellion against him. So that's one way to hear the laughter of God. But thankfully, there's another way as well. If you have kissed the son, submitted to the king, if you are his and in his kingdom, then you can laugh with God. So you've got this huge sinful temptation. You've got this huge addiction. You, you see in the world around you all of these dangers and all of these terrorists trying to take us down and all of these illnesses that just creep up and who knows in this congregation who's gonna be next with illness and loss and tragedy. When you face a world in a life like that, 
Submit to the king, kiss the son, and you can laugh together with God because his power is so much greater than any of those things that I've mentioned. Jesus said at the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me. That is an awesome phrase. All authority has been given to me. The next time you face something big, just say that line in your, in your head. Just say it over and over, like the songs we sing. You know, we sing these words 25 times, and it's because our heads are so hard. It, it takes 25 times to get it into your head. Just say, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. And let that sink down into your heart, into your soul, and let it rest there. It's a great and powerful phrase. We do have a new king. You know, I've, I've said we hate kings, right? We do. We want to throw off the authority. But there's another part of you that is God-designed, not the sinful nature part, but the God-designed part that longs for a good and true king. And you see this, you see this longing for a good king. In, in many legends, especially in Europe where you see it like King Arthur or Robin Hood when King Richard goes off to the Crusades and everybody is longing for the king to come back and set everything right. Or the Lord of the Rings, the third book or movie in that trilogy is Return of the King. It's this great king in the north king of Gondor, Aragorn, and he's coming back. He's coming out. He's going to save. He's going to set everything right again. Even the monarchy in England, it's lost all its political power. We're fascinated by royalty. There's a, if you look enough in your heart, there's a way that you can see, I really do want a good and true king. And I really understand that I'm not going to be that person. And neither is our president, whether it's George Washington or Trump or anyone else. It doesn't matter. I'm looking, I'm looking for that, that day when the king will come back. And that is our hope as Christians. Now, finally, in the last few verses of Psalm 2, uh, where it starts in verse 10, you, you hear these violent words of the king being set up in verses four through nine and how this new king is gonna just take a, an iron rod and, and strike the enemy and break them up as a, a pottery dashes into pieces, is dashed into pieces, and this violent language. And then verse 10 happens, and there's no sort of explanation of how this transition happens. You go from... Uh, dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Next verse. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Look at the last line of Psalm 2. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So that's the last section. This king threatens to destroy the enemy, but then also makes a way out. There's refuge here for the same enemies that he's threatening to destroy. He's got a way out for them. And he's got a way out for you and for me. And this is why this king is so good. This is why when we look at the book of 1 Samuel and we see David come into power, we realize in the first audience it was great. In the New Testament audience, it was greater. But in today, we realize that we're close to the second coming of Christ, maybe even in our life. That's great. That's probably, that's the greatest way to read Psalm 2. Well, in the Old Testament audience, it was really two things. 
the way they read verses 10, 11, and 12 was, you either kiss the son or die. You either be wise, kiss the son, submit, or, and live, or, or you die. That's, that's it. But the funny thing was, Israel died. So you see how complicated that is. The words in Psalm 2 spill out into the New Testament yet again, and we see that the Israelite kings are long gone. The Romans have come in, as I said, the laughter of God. It's an echo. It's a memory. And then Jesus comes in. And what does this king do? Does he dash them into pieces? Does he destroy the enemy as everyone around Jesus wanted him to? He doesn't. He dies a shameful death. I want you to see Jesus with this element of surprise. He isn't supposed to die. He's supposed to be the king, but, but he does. The king dies. Listen to Jesus as he faces the rulers, again, back with Pontius Pilate. The Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, Pilate, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king like Jesus opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out. He said, here is your king. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, take him away. Like they were shouting this, chanting this. Crucify him, crucify him. They just kept shouting. You hear the rage, don't you? Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? And these... Very convicting words. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests of Israel said. We have no king but Caesar. Do you hear the betrayal? Either they were lying just to get Jesus killed, or they were being honest. That's even worse. They throw God off as their king, and then they say, Caesar. 16, that verse 16 in this passage says, finally Peter handed him over to them to be crucified. And all the while, Jesus, the good and true king, said nothing. He did nothing. He allowed these people, and I'm quoting from Psalm 2, to rage, to plot, to set themselves against the king. The very pronouncement of destruction that, that Psalm 2 pronounces against God's enemies, Jesus steps in front of that wrath he steps in front of that condemning judgment and he takes it on and absorbs it into himself. Jesus is dashed into pieces like pottery and he let them. And then, as you know, the glorious thing happened on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, shocking everyone. Jesus was not defeated by death. This king is alive and he empowers his, dis his disciples, his followers, to spread this kingdom with something called the gospel, which is a proclamation of good news that the king is here. The good news that there is now a new king who will one day return and set everything right again. In Acts 3, Paul the apostle gave a sermon to Antioch Israelites and others who gathered and, and said, he referred to Psalm 2, and he said this, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And now that when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. 
He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that is our hope today. Second coming of Christ, he's coming, he's coming back. I grew up in a church that talked a lot about the second coming of Christ, how he will come as king and defeat all his enemies, how he comes with the trumpet sound on the clouds or in the cloud of God's glory, more accurately. Um, uh, a lot of us in our church had the bumper sticker, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Do you remember that one? <laughs> the second coming of Christ is a huge event in our minds, uh, and it's, it's going to happen. How is the second coming of Jesus Christ going to change your life today, in today's audience, today, for you? Well, there's a lot of things we can say here, but I'll just mention one that is really significant for me. And I'm going back to uh, this verse that really struck a chord with me, verse five in Psalm two. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. When Jesus comes back again, there will be terror because of his fury. Fury is a word that's like anger times 10. It feels like wrath times 10. Now he's just fury. He's just beside himself in anger spitting out judgments and condemnations and destruction is just furious. This is Jesus coming back, and I can feel very afraid of that. The end of the world makes all of us afraid. However, we have been told how the world ends. We have been told the end of the story. Let me give you an example of how this might change your life in, in creating a calm and, and, and sense of peace in your life as you consider Jesus. In season three of a show on, on Amazon Prime, I watch it, it's called Burn Notice. Um, Michael Weston, he's a burned spy who's been in trouble ever since he was fired from the CIA. And he tries to find out how he was set up and tries to get his life back and his name cleared. And his girlfriend Fiona's helping him. And in one particularly exciting episode, um, Fiona's kidnapped by terrorists and no one knows where she is. No one knows and shows she's gonna die any moment now and no one can find her. Um, and so Michael, just like you know Jack Bauer, Jack Ryan and every other hero in action TV shows, he goes back and he looks at the clues he's already looked at and he finds one and then it leads to another and another and then there he goes. He finds her. He finds the location in some amazing, miraculous way. And the scene is always the same, but it's, it's so incredible <laughs> You know, he prepares for his assault. You can see him, right? He's going to his secret hideout storage place, you know, and he gets a, this gun and that rocket launcher and this thing, the night goggles, whatever. He gets all this stuff, throws it in the back of his car, and he's driving. He's got this look on his face, right? He's going to save his girlfriend. And he drives over there, and, and he considers his friends. They're on the phone, maybe, and he's like, hey, hey, don't go in there alone. Wait for backup. We'll be there in five minutes. And Michael Weston, you can probably say it with me, we don't have five minutes. You know, it's the same thing, right? And it's just intense. And so he sees it, he, he swims somehow in water under a barrier and gets inside this stronghold of the enemy. And he's got like five people over there and three over there and he's shooting people and he's diving on them. And, and I'm like about to have a heart attack. I'm like, no, don't go in there. You'll die. It's certain death. And then I remember there's a season four. <laughs> and most of my friends are watching that season. So I'm like, you know, Mike's good. And it takes a little bit of the thrill out, doesn't it? You know Mike's gonna make it. 
So go ahead, save the world, it's fine. Go ahead, do, do your stuff. But I know deep down that at the end of the day, there's a whole nother season of Michael Weston's escapades and, and adventures. That's how we're supposed to live the Christian life. We know the end of the story. We know the king is not going to die. You're not going to die in the end if you kiss the son. Luke 21, Jesus, Jesus begins to talk to his disciples about the end of the world. He describes his second coming, and he notices their fear and trembling, and he says these words. When these things begin to take place, stand up. Listen, listen to the words of Jesus. Stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Stand up, lift up your heads because there is a season for, there's another season and Jesus is going to make it. He will bring you home before the night. Well, our calmness as we trust in the coming king is what makes us the light of the world. But this morning, we're considering the elements on the table before us. We're taking communion. And as we consider these elements, this, on this table, are two things that represent our king. The, the two elements that represent our king is the bread, representing, of course, his body. And this bread is broken because his body was destroyed. He died. This is our king. And he did this for you and for me. And then the second element, this is the wine. The wine, of course, as you know, represents the blood of Jesus. And as he pours it out, he says, this is my blood, which is shed for you. He spilt his blood for you and for me. This is our king this morning, and we're going to remember him. The elders can come up, and we'll, music will play. And as we prepare our hearts, um, I want to say a couple of things. First, if, if you have experienced the forgiveness of his broken body and shed blood, if you have kissed the son and submitted to him, and you are a Christian, this is your time to come down and remember your king. But if Jesus is not your king, I want you to stay in your seat and reflect on what we've talked about this morning, what we've sung about this morning. The truth is that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me pray. Father, we take this time this morning to reflect and to remember these elements pointing to your broken body and your spilled blood. You, our king, have laid your life down for us. Help us to remember. Help us to participate with you in your sacrificial love for the sake of the lost in this world, we pray in Jesus' name.